Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Welcome to the second before last episode of 2022. We're coming a little later stemming from trying to not get stuck in the holiday slowdown that typically befalls this period of time, the end of the year. But I wanted to bring you guys some awareness of some of the COP15 biodiversity targets that were reached at the recent Montreal Biodiversity Summit sponsored by the United Nations. And I want to plug for you my new video about whether or not you should get an America the Beautiful Pass. And I'll briefly explain my sentiments using it because I travel to many national parks and related properties for CFACT and even for leisure. And I want you guys to look into getting this past too. If you're looking for ways to be creative in 2023, you want to find your park, you want to spend more time outdoors. I'm going to make a quick pitch as to why you should do it by investing in this $80 before taxes pass. The 15th annual COP15 Biodiversity Conference which was held in Montreal this past winter, earlier this month, reached an interesting conclusion about biodiversity goals, namely 30 by 30. You guys have heard me talk about the 30 by 30 initiative, the America the Beautiful initiative. And before I go into some of the targets that concern me, I want to give a little context as to what happened from this conference. I was actually supposed to go. I wasn't able to for two reasons. Montreal had some wacky COVID restrictions still in place, although I could have gotten into Canada and I had a short-term contract precluding me from going. So unfortunately, I couldn't tune in and attend this, but I followed it closely. Before I go into some of the 23 targets that were achieved, interestingly enough, 195 or some odd countries agreed to this. China was the host nation overseeing this biodiversity summit. But it was hosted in Montreal, Canada. So Canada was hosting the conference, but this conference was hosted by China because of COVID. They were slated to host this in 2020, but they moved it to Montreal. And interestingly enough, even though the United States is on board with a semblance of 30 by 30, again, Biden's America the Beautiful initiative, they were not shaping the final language from this agreement, oddly enough. They were nowhere to be found. I'm not sure what the case was there. Although they are largely in support with the framework, and I was reading some of the analysis that a lot of the countries couldn't agree with all the stipulations and the targets, but they reached a pretty definitive consensus among the participating nations. And now I want to read for you what the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Agreement entails. There were a couple points, noble, amiable goals that they reached that would largely garner support from Americans who are true conservationists. 
I don't think anyone wants to see species extinction. People want to preserve biodiversity. And we already do this under the framework we have through the North American model of wildlife conservation. Largely, hunters and anglers pay a critical role in protecting biodiversity. That's why we've seen a huge turnaround, largely, with species that were on the verge of extinction, commonly seen species today, bears, white-tailed deer, and so much more, and even bald eagles, which you shouldn't hunt, of course, but they've been recovered largely due to Pittman-Robertson funds and other related activities to help bring back imperiled species. And hunters and even anglers recognize at the turn of the century, a little history lesson for you guys, that if you hunt everything to extirpation, you engage in market game hunting, there won't be wildlife to not only harvest, but also to enjoy and admire. So we learn from our past mistakes here in the country, not to repeat this. That's why there have been over $15 billion generated for conservation since the inception of the Pittman-Robertson Act, of which about 60% of the conservation funding is derived from contributions of sportsmen and women, hunters and anglers, namely. And some of the goals, like green spaces, were also great, and they want to combat invasive species. I think you guys have seen the footage from Florida of these iguanas wreaking havoc similar with pythons, Burmese pythons in the Florida Everglades. And you've heard of other invasive species that really decimate communities, urban, rural, suburban, what have you. People want to help cull these numbers of invasives, whether it's flora or fauna. There's a lot of even invasive plants that also pose a problem to local environments. I know we have like the zebra mussel here in the mid-Atlantic region, which is a huge problem. There have been efforts to prevent their spread and reach. And so those kind of like innocent, good sounding goals, I could totally agree with. And that's what was stipulated in these targets. But what worries me as a limited government, true conservationist person, overall, I am not too privy on the United Nations giving dictates to us about how we should do conservation. You have China leading talks on biodiversity. They are arguably behind a lot of the poaching operations in Africa and other countries. They have some of the worst track records on pollution. So who are they, along with some of these other signatories who have terrible environmental track records, to lecture the United States and other developed countries on what goals we need to meet? I want to read for you some of the targets that troubled me a lot from reading and assessing what this is. Let's talk about one of the more concerning aspects, and I want you guys to read all the 23 targets for yourself. Now I'm going to just draw on some of the more complicated things. Target 15 should concern you a lot in several dimensions. And then there's also target 19, which I also want to emphasize as well. But target 15 sounds to me like creating ESG standards for governments and financial institutions with respect to reporting biodiversity. Here's what Target 15 says. Take legal, administrative, or policy measures to ensure and enable business, and in particular to ensure that large and transnational companies and financial institutions, A, regularly monitor, assess, and transparently disclose their risks, dependencies, and impacts on biodiversity, including with requirements for all large as well as transnational companies and financial institutions along their operations, supply, and value chains and portfolios, B, Provide information needed to consumers to promote sustainable consumption patterns and see report on compliance with access and benefit sharing regulations and measures as applicable in order to progressively reduce negative impacts on biodiversity, increase positive impacts, reduce biodiversity related risks to business and financial institutions and promote actions to ensure sustainable patterns of production. 
The Wall Street Journal, however, calls into question how to pair financial reports and and biodiversity reporting to these goals. So they write, the Wall Street Journal, that many companies are already scrambling to report carbon dioxide emissions under the ESG framework. Biodiversity reporting would add to the challenge, particularly as the metrics are more varied and complex than carbon emissions data. The COP15 draft framework doesn't detail exactly what companies would have to disclose. They also add that biodiversity reporting has been done in different forms for many years. For instance, mining companies often enlist experts to produce an environmental impact report for governments before they start a project. Other businesses have gotten involved in measuring their impact on various flora and fauna. Some companies assess the number of birds killed in fish ponds by getting caught in nets covering the fish. Others monitor land use at soybean farms in regions at risk of deforestation. And they further add that efforts to create a stronger system of biodiversity impact reporting have had false starts in the past. They say the last UN Biodiversity Summit held in 2018 stopped short of laying out formal rules for businesses to follow, although it did set voluntary guidelines on areas to include wetland conservation, urban river restoration, and sustainable livestock management. And so like with ESG, this biodiversity impact reporting is susceptible to a lot of people gaming the reporting. They can say that they're doing this, but on the other hand, they're actually not. Uh, They can buy points and wield influence somehow while misleading their actual conservation practices. And I don't think companies need to, much like governments, need to take cues from international bodies like the UN when they can voluntarily choose to support conservation projects. We've had different guests on the program this past year We had most recently a good example would be my friend Kurt McAllister from Toyota. Toyota voluntarily is doing conservation projects. It's not giving, taking a nod from the government or the UN to restore bison in South Dakota or to promote conservation projects in their particular areas of interest. Companies are doing it by themselves. They don't need dictates here. And the last most alarming thing I want to cover from this is also the financial requirements expected of every signatory. Target 19. Increasing biodiversity-related international finance resources from developed countries, including official developmental assistance, and from countries that voluntarily assume obligations of developed country parties to developing nations, in particular the least developed countries and small island developing states, as well as countries with, with economies in transition, to at least contribute $20 billion annually by 2025 and maximize those contributions to $30 billion annually by 2030. So basically, it's going to force redistribution of wealth from developed nations to poor nations to meet their COP15 goals. It's going to be, I guess, realized in, uh, I think it's foreign aid, in the form of foreign aid tying this in. That's what I remember reading somewhere, and that's how it'll be manifested, and The United States, I think our populace is really skeptical of where foreign aid goes, especially if it's manifested as protecting biodiversity. Again, this whole of government, whole of society approach and the financial requirements lead me to believe that this is not a serious proposal. And in fact, even a dangerous proposal that can undermine true conservation practices in the United States. Why does it require such large swaths of money, conserve waters and conserve lands by arbitrary deadlines? This is going to be ripe for corruption, like I said I think most countries will not meet most of these targets, and then they'll expect the United States to bail them out financially in order to encourage them to do this. 
our presence in these type of agreements, this is similar to the Paris Accords, our presence doesn't necessitate action by countries. It never will. These countries are largely, many countries are largely corrupt. They don't adhere to environmental standards like we do. They often look to us for inspiration in other ways. And, and certain people I talk to across the globe in Europe and other countries say they're jealous of our conservation practices. But I don't think these countries are very serious when they're demanding these reporting regimes for biodiversity metrics and then all this money. It leads me to believe that nothing will be accomplished and, in fact, true conservation practices will be undermined. I have a column coming out sometime in the coming days or week on this very subject. I have a report, an initial breakdown, actually, at Independent Women's Forum that you can read and how this will redistribute billions from rich to poor nations to achieve 30 by 30 and why I think a lot of people will be skeptical, naturally, from this and not want to see this implemented here. And I would say a final takeaway is this. Is this going to be embraced by the United States? So looking into what the forthcoming makeup of Congress is. So we are going to have divided government. We have the House of Representatives managed by Republicans, and you have the Senate now comfortably in control by Democrats. You have the Biden administration. The House is from which the purse of bills begin. So they're in charge of finances and appropriations. So I'm led to believe that this non-binding agreement, which the United States apparently didn't really have any input on, I don't think Congress is going to affirm it. Maybe the Senate would, depending upon what some of the Democrats, kind of those middle of the ground Democrats do. But the House for sure will not embrace this. And I think even some moderate Democrats will say, oh, I'm very concerned about this amount of money. I'm not sure these stipulations will be evenly applied. I'm worried that these countries will take advantage of the United States. So we won't see this agreement, which is largely non-binding, I think, passed in Congress. So it's largely ceremonial um, in the grand scheme of things. I want to be optimistic, but we could see, I mean, the Biden administration has tried to push 30 by 30 through secretarial orders in the Department of Interior. I could see them even though this is actually was ordered by one of Biden's climate executive orders, they will try, I think, by executive order, regulatory fiat, in addition to that, to implement 30 by 30 framework somehow. So we may look for that, but Congress, it will not codify this into law. So that's a silver lining. And I want to top off today's episode briefly for you guys, if you're still listening, to why you should get in America the Beautiful Pass. So the America the Beautiful Pass is offered by the Department of Interior and the National Park Service. And it's a great way, and it's been around for a while, so it's nothing new, but I think they renamed it to kind of coincide with the Great American Outdoors Act passage a couple years ago. And you can buy it through multiple avenues, the U.S. Geological Survey, you could buy it directly through the National Park Service, anything that falls under the framework of the Department of Interior, you go there and it costs before taxes $80. So what you get from that, you get access to 2,000 sites for a whole calendar year. You can take people with you in your car. It's for personal use. Cars mostly, you could take however many people can fit into your personal car. All of them will be counted towards admittance. And you can go into as many parks and related properties as you desire. So there are 63 official national parks. And there are countless properties and public land sites that fall under the purview of the National Park Service. So a lot of people think we have many, many national parks. We don't. We have National Park Service lands, which also include the 63 official national parks. Then you also have, with this interagency pass, 
the ability to access national parks or rather national monuments that are also National Park Service preserves. So there are two properties that come to mind, the Craters of the Moon in Idaho, which I got to visit, and also the New River Gorge uh, that falls under this framework as well, which is actually, I think, considered a national park now. Uh, but it's, it's a national monument that is co-managed by Bureau of Land Management and also typically and also the National Park Service. So there are lots of properties that fall under that framework, BLM land. Sometimes you have these daily user fees uh, that you don't really necessarily see when you enter. There's not really so much of entry fees for BLM lands, but for day use, you will have to pay like $20, $30 typically. So in properties that fall under this purview, your pass will cover those type of expenses in terms of um, entrance and I think for some day use entrance fees and, and passes. But where, unfortunately, this pass does not cover you would be for some extraneous fees. So since COVID, the National Park Service and Department of Interior, by extension, have added time to entry fees. I'm kind of mixed on these, having experienced them myself. I'll do it if I have to go to a park. $2 is not going to kill me in terms of expenditures. I have used it for Arches National Park and also for Rocky Mountain National Park because they're very popular but what I see these timed entry passes do, unfortunately, with the added cost, is kind of act as a deterrent for people to come visit the national park system, to visit these national parks and public lands. Some people in the preservationist arena have been cheering on these type of restrictions, saying that we don't want these filthy regular Americans to come play on public lands. It just should be reserved for us us anointed, virtuous public lands advocates, but they're really preservationists. They have cheered this on to limit people access to national parks and other related public lands. I think that's really deleterious. Yes, I'm concerned about overcrowdedness. I don't like people who go there to disturb the wildlife. I have those very same concerns, but I'm also wanting to see a balance of managing the inflow and outflow of people from these very popular destinations because I have seen the overcrowdedness. I went to Yellowstone in 2021. It was very crowded, not impossible to see things, um, but you should be able to manage the flow and inflow of people while also not curbing access when it is appropriate and when it is permitted. And so um, even beyond the timed entry fee, a timed entry fee, paying that and even having your pass will not exempt you from long wait times. I waited almost an hour to get into Arches National Park when I went there in May, but I still was able to get in a reasonable time frame. Um, so it doesn't really stop overcrowdedness as much in my kind of anecdotal take on it. And then it also doesn't prevent long wait times. You're still going to wait in line even with a pass and a timed entry fee to accompany your pass. But even if, I mean, for the cost, it's not that bad. It's only $2 you'll pay with the pass um, if you have your America the Beautiful pass. But people have sent to me recently that some, I think, defense contractor companies are meddling with national park lands and somehow making it so that people will have to pay these extraneous fees to even access certain hiking trails and other facets of the park beyond what people should pay. I'll have to link to that if you guys are interested but um, again, for very popular hikes, I think in Zion National Park, Angels Landing, they started to charge an additional access fee, and it goes by a lottery service in many cases. Very popular. So if you don't if you don't bid on it really early, or choose a date and time, or follow the timing and release of these tickets for timed entry, you won't be able to get it because of just how high in demand those are. And so, 
like I said, I think I'm kind of mixed on timed entry. I worry it could be used as a tool to limit people coming into the national parks. And again, that would be a disservice to the mission of the National Park Service, Department of Interior. We don't want to restrict people off of lands. We want people to go there to learn, to be educated, to see wildlife, but also to be respectful and not reckless with engaging with wildlife inappropriately, falling into areas you're not supposed to go, or going beyond certain boundaries. So that's what my feelings on that are. But I think overall, minus that little concern I have about timed access fees and and how it doesn't immune you from long wait times, even with the past two, I think all in all, it's a great investment. $80 before taxes, you pay about $85. In my video, I talked about how I only spent about $89 in total with the two timed entry fees. And then I also compared to what I would have paid had I not had the pass. Nothing wrong with those monies being paid if you want to pay $30 for every day use vehicle entry fee. Uh, typically, and I think for Craters of the Moon, it was about $20 per vehicle daily use. Um, but if you're on a budget, the pass will help you save money. So I saved about $81 of the 170 that I would have paid had I not had the pass. And because I was traveling all over the country to film at the parks, um, and you're allowed to film at the parks unless otherwise stated non-commercial projects, of course. So I was able to film a lot of Conservation Nation content with my videographer, Madison Hughes, who's been a past guest on the show. We frequently collaborate. We have more projects coming down the pipeline for CFACT. And um, so it's it's very permissive that you can film there. So having the pass, if you need to film, let's say, a non-commercial project, you can do it with the pass. It's going to make it much easier. And what I do ahead of time, even just for good measure, if I'm concerned or have a question, I reach out to the BLM or National Park Service related people ahead of time if there's no clarity on it, commercial, non-commercial rather, filming opportunities. But a court case from 2021 says that if you have non-commercial activity if you have non-commercial video projects you want to film, you have the First Amendment right to do so, and then you only have to reach out sometimes just to get in their good graces or just to clarify. That's what I typically do because I want to be in the right, of course, but you don't need permission to film non-commercial videos on most public lands in the United States, save for the U.S. Forest Service. You need to check in with them because that court case from 2021 in January did not apply to the U.S. Forest Service, unfortunately, but hopefully it will be applied there. And so check out my video. I have a full explainer on that. This is kind of a wraparound of my feelings of the past. I'm definitely going to buy one for 2023. My pass now is valid until sometime in mid or early April of 2023. So I still have a few more months to use it. And then I will definitely renew it. And you'll have 365 days to use it. Great stuff. Um, very easy to maintain, very easy to keep track of, and it's going to go a long way if you want to see the country and our natural wonders. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.